Well, we're in the home stretch of the book of Acts. We only have two weeks left uh, after this morning. And if you, you might remember, we started this series almost a year ago, uh, coming up in September. So it's been quite the journey. The book of Acts is considered, uh, as you might know, to be a historical monograph, which is to say a historical account. It's authored by a guy named Luke as part of a two-volume history of the church. He's writing this account on behalf of a patron named Theophilus, who was probably a guy in the first century trying to figure out his own spiritual journey. And he was just so, it just so happened he was wealthy enough uh, to commission this work with Luke to help him figure out who Jesus was, what he was all about. We know that volume one was the gospel of Luke, or is the gospel of Luke, which tells the story of Jesus' earthly ministry, his death, and his resurrection. Volume two is the book of Acts, which tells the story of the church, and it begins with the resurrected Christ. And it's fascinating how the story unfolds. It begins with a resurrected Christ amongst this fledgling group of Christians who were hiding out in a house in Jerusalem, scared to death for their very life. And it moves from that house to these great halls of power in which we find ourselves in Acts 26 as Paul stands and declares the glory of Christ before some of the most powerful people in the empire. Here in chapter 26, we, f we find Paul's judicial proceedings continue. You might be asking the question, why was Paul on trial? We've seen this for several weeks now, that after several church planting ventures around the Mediterranean, uh, Paul returned to Jerusalem to bring this financial gift from the broader church to the Jewish church there in Jerusalem, who was suffering severely from famine. So he brings this gift to Jerusalem. He makes his way to worship at the temple. And it's there that he comes face to face with a group of adversaries who attempt to apprehend Paul and take his life. Paul, of course, is blamed for this disturbance. And so begins this multi-phase trial. The first phase of that trial began right in the heart of Jerusalem, there at the temple with the Sanhedrin or the religious council of the temple. Paul claims, even there, that he's not on trial for this disturbance, but he's really on trial for the resurrection, which sparks this great theological debate amongst all the scholars who are there, and Paul kind of escapes uh, from that particular situation. But it's interesting, this is really how the story of Acts comes full circle. Paul really is on trial for the resurrection. And it's not just a Jewish theological debate in the first century. He stands trial for the resurrection because this is ultimately what the book of Acts is all about. Is the unfolding life of the resurrection. Acts presents us with a question. If Jesus really rose from the dead, what does that mean for the world? And the surprising answer is the church. It's us. It's the body of Christ. It's this colony of heaven that is future-oriented but exists in the here and now. The church is this beachhead for a world to come. And as beautiful and majestic and as poetic as that might sound, 
Acts is a grind. Every step of the way is a hard-fought battle. And here we are in Acts chapter 26. Paul's trial began back in chapter 22. And we find that chapter by chapter, Paul is saying the same thing, or having to say the same thing, over and over and over again. You might imagine how exhausted, how tired, how worn out he's become at this point. And here in chapter 26, Paul's at it again. You know, judicial proceedings have taken place before a variety of authorities. Ananias, Felix, Festus. And here in chapter 26, he stands before royal officials once again. King Agrippa and his sister Bernice. As I mentioned last week, King, King Agrippa was uh, a ruler of a province just uh, northwest, or just north of where Paul is at in Caesarea. He comes from a long line of Jewish rulers who were really entangled with the power games of the Roman Empire. He's with his sister, who is basically like the Marilyn Monroe of the first century. They were just visiting royals who happened to come to town to congratulate Festus. And Paul's ushered in before their presence. Agrippa's opinion is not going to make any significant difference, a real difference on Paul's standing, but it's certainly going to help Festus compose a report that is due to Caesar about Paul's trial. So here we find Paul following Jesus in the grinding gears of empire. And it reminds me of our life here in the city. Life in the city can be challenging. It's expensive. It's filled with complexity. We encounter overwhelming secular paradigms. It's hard to get things done. Amidst so much bureaucracy. Sometimes we're failing at justice. Sometimes we're failing at mercy. It feels like we're perpetually just trying to figure it all out. It feels like we're years of empire. So I thought about entitling this sermon, Why You Shouldn't Move to Idaho or Canada, Depending on Your Political Persuasion. But I suspect that most of us love this place. We just need an imagination for it. We just need the energy. And probably Paul felt like that in this final stretch of Acts. So where do we find the wherewithal for life here in the city? We find it in the words of Paul this morning as he speaks to Agrippa. Three things. Story, fulfillment, and identity. Story, Fulfillment and identity. We begin with story. And as we know from Hollywood and our favorite books, story can be powerful. I go to a, a monthly breakfast of men, and, and every breakfast, every time this rolls around each month, someone's telling their story, their life story, and how God has transformed their story. And I'm always amazed at the effect that it has on my own heart. It's like I'm climbing out of my own trench. And as I hear how God has worked in this city in somebody else's life, it's like I'm able to see the horizon all over again, the horizon of God. Well, that's what Paul's doing here and sharing his story with Agrippa. 
It begins in verse 2. Paul addresses Agrippa. I consider myself fortunate that is before you, King Agrippa. I am to make my defense today against all the accusations of the Jews because you are especially familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Remember, I mentioned a minute ago that uh, King Agrippa comes from a long line of Jewish rulers in the Roman Empire. You might recall his great-grandfather, Herod the Great, who tried to kill Jesus as an infant. King Agrippa has been working in the family business. Paul says, therefore, I beg of you to listen to me patiently. All the Jews know my way of life from youth, a life spent from the beginning among my own people and in Jerusalem. Paul's basically reminding everyone that he's a bit of a celebrity. Everybody knows who Paul was. But then Paul does a surprising thing. He goes on to detail his own death and resurrection in Jesus. Paul states that he was a Pharisee, which was a populist sort of sect of Judaism, sometimes given to violence in the first century, as we find in the case of Paul. Paul goes on to detail that life of violence in verse 9 through 11. He says he was an enemy of Jesus. He locked up Christians. He cast his vote for them to die. He punished them throughout the synagogues. He forced them to blaspheme. He pursued them to the furthest extent. What is Paul saying here to Agrippa? Paul's saying, I am the worst of the worst. Imagine somebody that could be so far, so inescapably far from Jesus, that's me. But then how did Jesus respond to Paul? Of course, the Damascus Road experience that he recounts in verse 12 through 14. Jesus appears in the fullness of light, the fullness of glory. And he tells Paul two things. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It hurts you to kick against the goads. And then secondly, he says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. That's a fascinating description for us as human beings as we live our life outside of God. That we hurt others. <laughs> we hurt ourselves. We go, against, we go against the grain of our own design because we're designed to be in a relationship with God. That's what Paul means, or Jesus means here, as he's telling Paul, it hurts you to kick against the goads. It hurts you to kick against your own design. And then finally, ever so poignantly and sweetly, Jesus says, you're hurting me. You're personally hurting me. Now imagine what you would say if you stood before a high-ranking governor of the empire, knowing that maybe this governor, maybe this ruler could pull some strings, get you out of jail, prevent you from facing a certain death. You probably feel a lot of pressure <laughs> to put together a cohesive, rational argument to defend yourself on legal grounds. But notice Paul doesn't go back to his story of arrest at the temple. Paul doesn't defend himself on legal grounds. Paul goes back into his personal story to declare the power of Jesus to Agrippa. Paul is a witness here, not an attorney for Jesus. And maybe you've felt the other way around, especially if you've done life here in the city, that somehow you needed to defend the faith, 
or explain why you believe in this really weird ancient thing from 2,000 years ago. Or you need to rationally convince someone, a neighbor, for example, that God is real. Well, the point that Paul is making here is not a cohesive, rational argument for faith. He's simply coming before Agrippa and sharing how God has transformed his life. He's saying to Agrippa, I was really, really, I was doing things that are unimaginable. And yet God met me on the road with his grace. And he's telling Agrippa that because Paul is probably thinking, this is the moment, Agrippa, where God could meet you on your road and transform you by his grace. God's grace came to Paul in the words of Jesus. Jesus forgave Paul for what was really an attack on Jesus himself. And he called Paul to turn away from self-righteousness and turn to his true identity, to God. And in sharing that story, he's inviting Agrippa into this new life, this new life with Christ. It's easy here in the city to get worn down, fed up, frustrated, judgmental. But you know what that reveals? It reveals our own self-righteousness. It reveals that we've made something else God in our life. Something else is giving us a standing. Something else is really our justification. And it might be how far we think we've come or how educated we are or how much we're in the know or how much we really have life figured out. But something else besides God has become our justification. But the reality that we hear in Paul's story, the reality that we can find in our own story is that we're all really messed up and yet God meets us on the road and on that road he offers love and forgiveness and calling how has God's grace transformed you how has God's grace transformed you And if you know the answer to that, then you have found the power by which God will transform our city. So that's first story. Second is fulfillment. Paul says so much here about fulfillment. And I can't get to it all. But let me give you two snapshots. He starts with fulfillment of the Jewish faith in verse 6 through 8. He tells Agrippa, and now I stand here on trial on account of my hope in the promise made by God to our ancestors, a promise that our 12 tribes hope to obtain as they earnestly worship day and night. It is for this hope, your excellency, that I am accused by Jews. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Well, what's Paul doing there? He's going back into Old Testament Jewish theology. He's going all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. And he's saying, as a Jew, we believe that God created all of this. (laughs) God created the world. God created the cosmos. God created every human being. So why would it be far-fetched that he would be the recreator? 
that he would be the God who raises from the dead. And he goes on in verse 22 through 23. So I stand here testifying to both small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would take place, that the Messiah must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. So Paul is saying there that, that Jesus is not only the fulfillment of Israel's identity, but Jesus is also the fulfillment of Israel's calling, a light not just for the Jews, but a light for all peoples of the world. First century historian Rodney Stark <clears throat> states that the reason why Christianity grew so rapidly in the first century is because it just made sense. It just made sense, actually, to both Jews and Gentiles. And regarding the Jews, this is really the essence of Paul's explanation that we think Christianity is not a break with the Jewish story. It's a fulfillment of the Jewish story. And in that way, Christianity is, in a sense, the utmost faithfulness to Judaism. And this is so compelling for Jews who had undergone profound change in the Greco-Roman Empire. Due to the great diaspora, Jews were living all over the Mediterranean region. Some of them very, very rarely had the opportunity to visit Jerusalem. They no longer spoke Hebrew. They only spoke Greek. It was hard day in and day out to follow Old Testament dietary laws that made them a separate people. And Jesus comes on the scene. The power of the gospel comes on the scene. And Jesus says, you're actually being faithful to Yahweh in Christ. Even if you don't live in Jerusalem. Even if you don't speak Hebrew. And even if you do eat a variety of foods from the marketplace. Faithfulness to Judaism is faithfulness in Christ. It's fulfillment. Jesus is fulfilling the Jewish story. But following Jesus also made sense for Gentiles in the empire. You know, a great deal has been made in Western civilization about the gods and the mythology of the pantheon in the Greco-Roman empire. But in reality, those gods and those stories are gods that came down and they acted just like us. They, they committed adultery. They killed people. They conned people. They acted just like human beings. They weren't very inspiring sort of deities. And no matter how much you sacrificed to these gods, to Artemis, for example, in Ephesus, there was never an answer back. It was just silence. But eventually, as we move into the first century, more monotheistic religions from the east such as Cybele or Isis or even Judaism, would make their way into the empire. Some of them into the Greco-Roman pantheon. And this actually set the stage for Christianity to make sense. Religions from the East were more emotionally engaging. They engaged the heart. The, the gods of these religions were virtuous, and they expected virtue in return from their adherents. And they came with scriptures that would engage the mind. As many stories as we have from the gods of the Greco-Roman pantheon, not one of those gods ever presented scriptures to their people. Some vision, some way of life. And so following Jesus, 
Gentiles in the empire discovered a God who was real. A God who, yes, a God who came down. Not to con us or manipulate us, but to give himself up for us. A God who engages our heart, our head, and our volition in a transformative way. Here's how Rodney Stark summarizes the work of another scholar in his book, Cities of God, and makes this point. He says, at the time Christianity arose, men were looking in certain directions and couched their religious aspirations and belief in certain terms. Christianity spoke the language which they understood and set its theology and its ritual in the forms which to its own generation seemed natural. The gospel could not have won its way if it had not found an echo in the religious searchings and even the religious beliefs of the time. So in the first century, Christianity was fulfillment. It was what everybody had been looking for for a very long time. And you might ask, Brian, that's a great historical account. What in the world does that have to do with life here in our city? Well, I believe this gives us a fresh perspective on what we consider to be so challenging in the city. And in the first century, Jews and Gentiles were coming from radically different places, and yet their hopes, their dreams, their aspirations were all the same. There was this instinctual desire to be in a relationship with a God that was real, a God who cared, a God who loved, a God who could bring real meaning, purpose, and transformation to life. And in our own city, we find those same aspirations. Amongst our friends, our neighbors, we find them within ourselves. There is a great desire for love and justice and mercy and inclusion and transformation and virtue. So where are those things truly found? They're found in Christ alone. They're found in Christ alone. It's in Jesus that we discover a loving God who entered our plight and gave his life to establish eternal forgiveness and eternal justice. So our faithful presence here in the city is so important Because as we're in real relationship with our friends and neighbors and we hear about their hopes and their dreams and their aspirations, we can say, looking for those same things. And I know where you can find them. It's in the God-man, Jesus. Story, fulfillment, and now identity. In Acts chapter 26, verse 17 through 18, Paul speaks of true identity. In the words of Jesus to him, Jesus said to Paul, I will rescue you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I'm sending you to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, and so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. So what Paul's saying there is that when you abide in Christ, you make a transition of citizenship from the kingdom of man to the kingdom of God. And in so doing, you discover your true identity that long ago was marred and clouded by sin, now clarified and redeemed in Christ. This is the story of the silver chair. C.S. Lewis chronicles 
of Narnia. Two earthly children, Eustace and and Jill, find themselves in the land of Narnia where they come face to face with Aslan, the great lion. They are given a mission to rescue Prince Rillian, the missing son of the great king Caspian. Aslan gives the children four signs and instructions that will guide their journey. And eventually, they find themselves in a type of underworld where they encounter the Lady of Green Kirtle, who at first appears to be their ally. She introduces the children to a young man whom she claims is in her safekeeping because for one hour a day, he goes into this mad fit, this rage, imagining himself to be someone else. He's out of his mind. But the children soon discover that it's no mad fit at all. In reality, the young man is under a spell and cannot remember his true identity, but for one hour per day. And during that hour, he's tied to a silver chair. He's not being protected. He's being held captive. And the lady is no lady. She's a witch who has kidnapped him. (laughs) And when the children finally set him free, he destroys that silver chair. And he proclaims, For now that I am myself, I can remember that enchanted life. Though while I was enchanted, I could not remember my true self. And when you live here in the city long enough, it has this enchantment to it. This way in which we kind of forget who we, who we really are. Sometimes even though we belong to Christ, we can forget our true identity. We're living in the, the grinding gears of empire and we think to ourselves, am I crazy? Who am I? Am I somehow like trapped in in this place. But as Paul speaks to Agrippa, Paul is awakening something inside of Agrippa, something that Agrippa knows to be true but feels compelled to deny that he belongs not to Caesar, but to God. And will he just apathetically walk away or will he make this choice to join Paul, which is to join Jesus? And that's the choice for us all. And sometimes we want to bail on the city because we've forgotten our true identity. We have forgotten our mission. But ours is the calling of awakening. Awakening to true identity. In conclusion, Tim Keller notes that the Bible begins in a garden and ends in a city. The Bible begins in a garden And it ends in a city. And it tells us a great deal about our purpose and our calling here in Portland. Life in the city is hard. It's complicated. It's it's challenging. And when I think about that, I'm reminded of the time when many walked away from discipleship because it was hard. And Jesus turns to the twelve. And he says, are you going to walk away too? And Peter, for the first time in his life, he gets something right. And he says, Lord, where else would we go? To Idaho? To Canada? I think that's there in the text. Now, the way of Jesus is living in the resurrection story that began in Acts. We're embodying the eternal life of Jesus, even as we are constantly confronted by death in all of its manifold forms. But if you remember your story, how God's grace has reached even you. 
if you remember that what we're a part of is fulfillment. That we're living in this triumphant victory of Christ. That everything is yes in Him. If we remember our identity. That we are citizens of a different kingdom. If you remember these things. You will not get lost in the city of man. Because you will know yourself in the city of God. Let me pray. Almighty and merciful God. It is only by your grace. Your faithful people offer you true and laudable service. Grant that we may run without stumbling to obtain your heavenly promises. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.